Good morning, and uh, if you have been with us in the last few weeks, um, I see some unfamiliar faces, so you have not been with us in the last few weeks, but we've been going through um, the Gospel of Mark, and, um, and I love just the way that the music this morning was, it was just so kind of laser-focused on, on Jesus, because that's what we've been doing in the series, is we have been following in the footsteps of our Savior, Jesus, and um, looking at life in the way of Jesus, which is what have, uh, we've called this series. And um, one year under our belt officially as a, as a church plant and uh, it's funny, I, I did something this week that I've never done before. I thought today was the 29th, and come Wednesday, I realized I had been preparing for next Sunday's sermon, and it was just too late at that point to go back. And so this is just kind of the benefit of a, of a church plant where we're just family here. And so um, this sermon this week is supposed to be next week, but you're just going to get it anyway, and then we're going to go backwards next week. And... Uh, it's okay, and I think it's good. So today, though, before we get into this text, to capture kind of the full meaning of, of the text here, we need to do um, a little bit of schooling. So for those of you who are in school, sorry, this is triggering, but we need to do a little bit of uh, sociology, history, geography, okay? So um, in this series, we haven't looked too much at the geography of the region where all of this is happening um, in the ministry of Jesus. Unfortunately, uh, because of the war going on in the Middle East, maybe we have been looking at maps of the, of the Middle East a little bit more. So maybe we are a bit familiar with um, Israel and Palestine and kind of the lay of the land and where the water is in, in relation to those places. And so as, as Liz read our text for us today, um, thank you, Liz. Um, I, I love just getting to hear sometimes larger passages like that, just getting to sit and, and just absorb God's word. But um, Mark chapter 4, 35, the opening line says, that day when evening came, he, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Okay, this throwaway phrase, the other side probably doesn't mean much to us, but to them, the other side was hugely significant. So in Mark's gospel, everything that's been happening so far has been in the region of Galilee, which is named for the Sea of Galilee, um, which is also an awesome little hole in the wall Mediter uh, Mediterranean restaurant up in Snyder Plaza, up by SMU, that serves uh, food on styrofoam plates. Sea of Galilee, pretty awesome. Um, but the Sea of Galilee is, uh, or Galilee's on the west side, right? So here's Galilee. Um, West side, left side, okay? So everything has been happening on the, the left, west side of Galilee. Uh, Galilee, I thought was interesting, is, is the lowest body of fresh water in the world. Um, it's about 700 feet below sea level. The only body of water that's deeper is, is the Dead Sea, which is salt. So um, anyway, Galilee's on the west shore, and the other side is referring to the east coast of Galilee, right? The New York side, where there is a place called the Decapolis. The Decapolis is essentially enemy territory to the Jews. These were the pagan Gentiles over there. These were the evil ones, right? And this mindset goes all the way back to the Old Testament, where we learn about the people who eventually settled on that side. They were the seven nations, uh, the seven Canaanite nations. This is from Joshua chapter 3. The Canaanites, the Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, Jebusites, and the Dallasites are in there somewhere. Um, 
but they were the ones who settled on the east side. So this area was strictly off limits for the Jews. If you would go over to that place, you would culturally, um, ethnically, religiously be defiled by these people, right? These were the people that you would never choose to mingle with. There was even a rabbinic teaching that said if you were even to utter the word decapolis, you would be unclean for seven days. So when Jesus says, here's where we're going, the other side, right? Safe to say, there were a lot of emotions that were probably stirred up, and they probably weren't positive ones. So verse 36, if you're following along, Mark 4, 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. So, right, tensions are high, and then this happens. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So they're already nervous about where they're going, and then this happens, which to the disciples probably fell into the category of this is what I would expect because we're going out on the sea right now. And in ancient Judaism, the sea was a terrifying place. All throughout their scriptures, the sea represented chaos. It was this untamable force of destruction. Um, interestingly, we know this historically that um, unlike their surrounding nations, the ancient Jewish military never had a navy. They were really scared of the water, okay? The waters all throughout the Old Testament represented the abyss and darkness. So the storm would actually fit their narrative. Like, why am I not surprised? We're going to that side and we're going across the sea. And of course, our lives would be in danger because of this storm. So they're terrified. They turn to Jesus and they get this, you know, here's the version of their helpful, kind, supportive, available Jesus that they get. Verse 38, Jesus is sleeping on a cushion right? And the disciples woke him and they said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? So subtext, they are indirectly kind of rebuking Jesus here. What are you doing? Like we are going to die and you are just going to sit here and let this happen. But when Jesus responds, he responds with a rebuke of his own. 39, he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Verse 40, he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And I want to camp out on this part of our text a little bit longer than the, the latter part today. And, and I think there are some really valuable lessons that we can take from a life with Jesus here. The first lesson, notice this command where he says, quiet, be still, right? And the wind died down and it was completely calm. It didn't just stop storming. It was totally still. Have you ever seen that glassy look on a completely calm lake that it reflects the trees and the sun and the clouds and all that? Mark seems to be drawing our attention to something special here. One author pointed this out, and I hadn't noticed this, but he said, if the storm had just stopped, we might dismiss this as a coincidence, right? Like if I were to go in my backyard during one of these, you know, legendary Texas thunderstorms, and right at the moment that I just happened to go out there and like a madman yell, be still, be quiet, and it just happened to be the end of that thunderstorm, well, it could just be a coincidence. But in this, the storm stops, and it was completely calm. 
But if you've ever seen a storm pass over a body of water, or if you've ever seen clips of like when a hurricane, you know, crosses over the Atlantic or the Gulf, when the storm passes, that water is still raging, right? Those waves are still, they're lapping up against the shore and, and crashing long after, right? So what happens here is not a mere coincidence. It was something miraculous. And it was this demonstration of power even over the seas. So Jesus, previously in Mark, had already established that he has authority over the spiritual realm, over the demons. He's established that he has authority over sickness. He has done all of these divine healings, right? And now there's a new category that his authority applies to, and that is even over the created world, even over nature, Jesus has authority. And, and just to make a few comments on this, it's really interesting because first, if you notice the authority that Jesus relies on here. He doesn't pray, right? He doesn't say, God, bring the, the seas to rest, right? It isn't like the Old Testament prophets who would cry out to God and say, rain down fire so everybody can see your demonstration of power and glory. He says it himself, right? Quiet, be still. And as his disciples were Jewish, any Jewish person would have known those, the, the Old Testament clearly showed that there is only one being in the universe that has power over the seas, right? And that is God himself. And yet Jesus here, in his own voice, in his own words, has that authority, and he says, be still. He contains the power over the chaos of the seas because he is God in the flesh. See, there's only two ways that you could think about the universe around us. Either there was a divine power behind the creation of everything, or there was not. Either the world is without a creator, and it is the natural occurrence of a great storm with, with particles um, colliding accidentally, particles which resulted in a, in a big bang of sorts, which resulted to our being here. In other words, we were here because of a great accidental storm. So that is one way to view the universe. The other way that this text gives us here is that we are here because there is one who is actually the Lord of the storms. There is a God with unlimited power that has no rival. It is not a battle among equals, you know, like the Avengers going toe-to-toe -to -toe with some other supercharged being like Thanos, right? There is no match to Jesus' power here in verse 41 the disciples, you see them slowly piercing, uh, piecing this together. That this Jesus, he is not a, a prophet. He is not a supercharged man. Verse 41, their reaction is that they were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus surely here is no one other than the almighty God in the flesh. Because again, no one has power over the seas. The theological term for this is sovereignty, right? Sovereignty is kind of a way of saying top of the dog pile um, informally. It is saying that Jesus is the ultimate authority over everything. He has no constraints. There is no limiting factor on him except his own will and his own character. He's not limited by physical or, or spiritual barriers. He's not even limited by time. He does what he wants when he wants it. And that he is sovereign and has authority over the universe actually 
really impacts how we relate to him personally, right? Sovereignty isn't just some abstract idea. It's, I think it's actually one of the most relevant um, concepts in theology because it changes how we relate to him. Because at the heart of sovereignty is a question that I think all of us have asked at some point, and a lot of us ask probably very often is, can I trust him, right? If he is in the driver's seat, is he, if he is the, the king of the universe, is he trustworthy? And this is the next lesson that we take away from the story here, is we learn about the one in whom we trust. All right, so these disciples, they get a bad rap sometimes. I, I mean, I think if you were in that boat, wouldn't you say their reaction is completely understandable? Um, after college, I spent some time backpacking around South America, and at the end of our trip, my buddy Aaron and I, were, we were trying to get home. You know, it was the stage of life, like we didn't really have a plan. It was just like, home's north, so let's just get there somehow. Um, and we thought we'd just take a bus, because that's what we've been doing for the last four months, is just taking a bus everywhere without much of a plan. Until we learned there's only one place that the Pan American Highway does not connect. It goes all the way from Alaska to the tip of South America, except for this little piece of land between Colombia and Panama. And that's where we were, we found out. So we weren't taking a bus. There was an airport on the northern side of this little marsh area, and we had to get there by a boat. Boat, not ship. We had to get there by a boat. This thing was like three feet wide, 12 feet long with a little outboard motor. And we had to pass around the peninsula of, of Colombia into Panama. So it's like the ocean, right? On this little And it was cloudy. It was windy. And it seemed like there was a storm brewing. And we were going up and over these waves. And we were going up and up. And, and it was, I'm not exaggerating. It, these were like 25-foot swells in this little boat, and they weren't crashing, but we were just rolling over these, and in just the magnitude of these waves and how small and insignificant we were in that. I, I, I mean, I, this was a thought that I never had before, and I never, had sen- uh, never have had this since, but I genuinely thought, I'm not gonna make it home. Like, this is the end of my life here. And, and you know, this is number one on my list of things I would no longer do having a family. But uh, it was an adventure at the time, but I, I was literally praying and coming to terms with my death. I, I felt so small and powerless out in the open seas. So I, I guess my point is, I get it, right? But this is also the story of our human experience, right? Where we, we feel sometimes so infinitesimally small and insignificant and out of control when we face these great storms of life, these storms that could fill us with this paralyzing fear. And in these situations, one of the first questions we often turn to is, why, right? Why would you let this happen, God? Why would you allow this, whatever it is, fill in the blank, this cancer, this miscarriage, this mental or physical disability, this thing that is just plaguing me and my family, why won't you help? Why won't you come to my rescue with this job situation, with these finances and this broken whatever relationships or housing issues And we are asking a question that I think is really similar to what the disciples are asking here. Bad things are happening. Why don't you care? You're just sleeping, right? And the lesson that I have been taking from this this week is 
this is a, just like a microcosm of the human experience, right? Where we face these storms in life. Like, like when I was on that little boat and I, I just felt so, so overwhelmed by the powers around me. And at that time, when I was on that little boat and, and when we were on whatever storms we might be facing in life right now or things that you've recently passed through, we, we probably are tempted to say that when we're in this place of fear, the opposite of that fear would be peace, right? The, the, the circumstances that would change where that storm would go away and the waves would diminish and the waters would calm and we would experience peace. But in this story, verse 40, what does it say is actually the opposite of fear? It doesn't say that it is peace, but the opposite of fear is actually faith. Jesus is asking them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The Christian life does not promise the absence of storms. It does not promise us a, a lack of pain or suffering or a guarantee of prosperity. And in some ways, I, I think this little boat scene is like the microcosm of the Christian life where, you know, Jesus says to his disciples, follow me. And they're like, yeah, Jesus, we like this guy. He's amazing. We've seen his power. And he says, we're going to the other side. Oh, no, I thought follow you was like, you know, we're going to do some like the easy stuff, right? Like follow you to a nice place, not the other side, right? And say you get in the boat with him and he brings you into the storm. And you might be thinking, I really picked wrong on this one. First, we're going to that place and then the storm comes. Like, you know, maybe we're, we're starting to ask questions of maybe he's not really who he says he is. Maybe, maybe I want out. I said yes, but I kind of want to get out of this boat now. And in this, in this modern world that we all find ourselves in, whatever labels you want to use, um, I think some appropriate ones would be that we are in a, a kind of this therapeutic pain-avoiding world that we are all swimming in, where pain, problems, storms, whatever you want to call it, usually make us think that we have done something wrong or we have chosen the wrong path. And we could get into these spiritual guessing games sometimes where we think there's a right path and a wrong path, and, and that if things are not going perfectly smooth, Oh, I got on the wrong path, right? And the flip side, if there are if there's an absence of challenges, we think this is it. This surely is exactly where God wants me to be. But I mean, where do we get these ideas from? Because I think it, it, it's certainly not the Bible. I mean, if we just step back and look at the life of these disciples and all of the early Christians, and, and by this standard, we must think all of these people picked wrong, right? When you look at the amount of pain and suffering and persecution that they all go through, their lives are sprinkled with these trials. I mean, what, what do we know? We know in this case, Jesus calmed the storm and prevented them from being shipwrecked. But we also know later in the book of Acts that God allowed a storm that shipwrecked Paul, right? So we don't really know. We can't really know where God is taking us sometimes. And now I do think, like, uh, just a footnote, through a practice of prayer, uh, of discernment, of listening to God, of reading the scriptures, seeking wise counsel, I, I believe we can discern things that are good that God wants us to step into. But it's often not as simple as like A or B, good or bad, right? It sometimes looks more like A or B or C or D, E, F, right? And, and more importantly, what God wants from us is, is how we walk down those paths, 
how we go on that journey with him is the more important question. Are we going to honor God and love our neighbor and, and abide in Jesus no matter what the circumstances are? Are we going to choose to worship and praise him and, and obey his teachings? So I think if you're going through something like this in life, let me encourage you. I, I don't know what it is specifically, but difficulty might not be a sign of God's absence, right? It might actually be a sign of his presence, And there's another lesson I want us to see in this story. So looking at if the opposite of fear is faith, it's important for us to understand faith because faith isn't always about having enough of your questions answered and have enough of your doubts kind of addressed so that you have this threshold that you cross over where you say, now I can believe. There's enough reasoning here that I can believe because when we see faith In this story and in the scriptures, faith is about trusting in a person, right? Jesus is the object and the source of our faith. In verse 40, when Jesus asks, do you still have no faith? Another way to translate this is to ask, where is your faith? Where? What is the object? What is the location of of your faith? What is that source where you are getting your peace from? And we are saved by the object of our faith. We are not saved by the strength of our faith. We are not saved by the quality of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith. And so the peace that we find in this story, the peace that we could potentially experience in a storm comes from trusting that Jesus is in that with us. Trusting in his power, in that word sovereignty, right? That's what makes these verses like Romans 8.28, which sometimes sound impossible, this is what makes it possible to experience this, that, that Romans 8 says, all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If Jesus is with us, whatever happens, like with no caveat, whatever happens, the good, the bad, the ugly, he promises to weave all of those things together into the beautiful tapestry that he is making of our lives. We cannot control the storms of life, and that is terrifying. But we cannot control Jesus either, and that can also be terrifying. And I don't know if you caught that in verse 40. You almost think the disciples, they have the wrong response. After Jesus calms the storm, they are still terrified, right? But they're not terrified because of the storm anymore. They are terrified because they are starting to see Jesus, who he really is. You see, the powerful storms of life are are terrifying and we are out of control, but a storm doesn't love you. And in a life with Jesus, his power is unimaginable. His wisdom is beyond what we can even begin to grasp and we are totally out of control. But things that come our way, we can always trust that Jesus loves us. A storm does not love you, but Jesus loves you. And this promise is that we, we have one that is with us in these storms who has unmatched power and unmatched wisdom and that he is trustworthy and that he is always with us and will never forsake us. And this idea, this concept of, of sovereignty, of God being in control is perfectly captured in the beloved children's novel, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. You're probably familiar with this idea where, where Susan, one of the children, when she learns that this great Aslan is not a man, but is actually a lion, and she asks Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver famously answers, safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. 
He's the king, I tell you. So now, briefly, I want to look at the second part of our passage. So first, that's just looking at the power of Jesus and how that impacts us. But now, I want us to look at the power of our story. And it's a long text, as Liz read for us, and I'm not going to unpack all of this, but I do want to point out one thing that I think is really relevant for each of us. So what was waiting for these disciples when they got to the other side was chapter 5, verse 2, a man with this impure spirit that was waiting for them. There were no crowds, right? This is what we were accustomed to in, in, on, on the, the west side, the left side of Galilee, right? People bringing their loved ones. They're coming to see Jesus. They want to see miracles. They want to see him feed people. It's just one person, and it's this tormented, demon-possessed man. And Jesus works powerfully in his life, casts out a multitude of demons, which is interesting as a subtext here or a footnote. I sometimes wonder, how many demons are out there in the world? Well, all I know is that there are enough to have a legion in this one man. I don't think there are enough to have a legion in all people, but I do think that's an interesting point. And they're, they're dramatically cast out and they enter into about 2,000 pigs and they all run off the cliff. But here's what I want to focus on in this story. When Jesus goes to leave the Decapolis, verse 17, it says, the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region, right? Okay, he just caused them great financial loss. Those 2,000 pigs are pretty pricey, right? And now they just want this guy, you've caused enough problems, go home. And then verse 18 this man, he wants to become a disciple of Jesus. And he is this perfect candidate. He says, can I follow you? I mean, he's this transformed, devoted person. Isn't this what Jesus wants of his disciples? But what does Jesus say? He says, no, I want you to stay here. And I want you to tell everyone how much the Lord has done for you. And so he tells that man to stay and the disciples go back to the other side. But, but the other side The Decapolis is not done in Mark's narrative here because sometime later in chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples get back on the boat. And remember what was waiting for them the first time. There was no crowds, right? It was just this one demon-possessed man. And then in Mark 6, 53, listen to this. This is getting back to the Decapolis. It says, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. And they ran throughout that whole region and they carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was and wherever he went into villages or towns or the countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces and they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. This now sounds like the crowds of Galilee, doesn't it? And it's just this amazement and this wonder over Jesus and we should be asking where did this great spiritual awakening come from? And I believe what Mark wants to see here is that what we saw in verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20, we see that this man had something to do with it. It says, The man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. People recognized him from his days of torment. Maybe they wanted to talk to him and they they wanted to learn more. Maybe he went in very public places and he started testifying what Jesus had done. Or or maybe he just, you know, went to his friends and his family one-to-one and the word got out. And I learned something really fascinating. Hundreds of years later in this region, it became known for having some of the most vibrant churches in the world. And in one of those regions, there was the Bishop of Hippo 
who would go on to be one of the church fathers who would craft, help craft what we now call as the Nicene Creed that came about in the 300s. The Nicene Creed, which would become one of the most foundational creeds of the Christian faith. And this all comes back to this moment of Jesus transforming a life and then that person sharing their story with others. And I think for us, it's just a very simple question of how might God be inviting you to share your story with others? And maybe there are ways that you could share stories of how Jesus has saved you. And maybe there are these spiritual conversations where we can sit down with people. And as the the great hymn says, we can just tell stories of how we once were lost and now we are found. We were blind, but now we see. And I think sometimes, though, in a church, there can be pressure to have like a dramatic faith story. I don't know if you've felt this sometime. Like, how could you compete with this guy, right? demon-possessed, homeless, violent, years of self-harm turned evangelist for Jesus. Like, what a great story that the church social media team is going to capture this guy's story and have that pinned on the top of their Instagram for years, right? You might be thinking, ah, but me, I'm, I'm just kind of got a basic story, right? I've, I've been in the church. I've always been in the church. I, I never went too far off the deep end. I didn't do anything wild and dramatic. I've pretty much always was a Christian, and I don't think my story really helps anybody. And if that's you, you might prayerfully just consider and trust that God's grace in your life might have more of a profound impact in others than you would think. You might be surprised how your particular story would resonate in the life of somebody else. I mean, think again about these disciples on the boat in this storm. Right? Maybe your faith in Jesus has helped you navigate some storms in life. Maybe they're not the most dramatic things, but, but maybe you didn't necessarily go through a hard time with great faith. But you found you had enough faith, and you saw that Jesus was with you in these storms, and that you saw that even though stuff was happening that was pretty rough, that he was still good, and he still was trustworthy, and, and you tell stories about that. And you tell stories of how you, you might have just had a bit more peace and understood a bit more purpose when you've gone through some of those storms. And to think that God would delight to use that, and if he is sovereign and he is in control and guiding you and he knows the places that you have been and where you will be, that he wants to use your story. I've tried sharing a story a bit like this in the first nine months of this church when my wife had a really rough pregnancy. And, and we went through that season, like I always tell people, if it was like letter grades, A to F, we'd probably be closer to an F, but thank God it was just pass fail. And I think we passed, like barely. We were just hanging on and we got through it. And it wasn't this season of like deep abiding and peace in the Lord. And like, you know, it's like, what's that meme of like everything's burning around them. You're just drinking the cup of coffee. Like it's all good, man. It wasn't like that at all for me. And I didn't have perfect faith and, and, and perfect trust in that time, but, but we're not saved by our perfect faith, right? We're not saved by the quality of our faith. Tim Keller has this analogy that I think I've shared this before and, and I love it, but he says, imagine you're falling off a cliff and sticking out of that cliff is a branch and it may be strong enough to hold you, but you don't know. And as you fall, you have just enough time to reach out and grab that branch How much faith do you have to have in that branch for it to save you? Must you be totally sure that it can save you? No, of course not. You only have to have enough faith to grab the branch. 
And it doesn't matter how you feel about that branch. All that matters is the branch. And that branch is Jesus. And we remember that as we come to this table every Sunday here. The elements are the same. The bread and the juice and the cup, right? And we come to this table, though, with a wide range of experiences. We come with a wide range of of belief, a a wide range of of confidence, a a wide range of of our obedience and lack of obedience and and our trust and lack of trust. But we all come to this table the same. And we receive God's grace the same. Because we are not saved by what we did and did not do, but we are saved by what he did for us by grace, through faith. And so remember that as you come to the table this morning and you remember that there was one who was with his disciples and on the night that he was betrayed, during this Passover meal, he took this bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you and to do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood and it's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And a good shepherd here every Sunday, as often as we eat this bread and we drink of this cup, we all come and receive it the same. It's by his grace. But we remember who he was, who he is, and that he surely will come again. And so when you're ready, come down the center, uh, take some bread. You can tear off a chunk. Um, Sometimes people are embarrassed when they get a big chunk of bread. I see it in the front, and it's like, oh my gosh, but just like God's grace is extravagant, okay?